0: think for a minute, how many different ways could you take home tonight? The farther you live, typically the more options you would have. I live about a mile from here, and there are two direct routes I could take. If I were trying to go in a roundabout way, say to avoid certain spots or certain people, there are all sorts of detours uh, that I could take, some more direct than others. God told Jacob in our last passage To go back to Canaan. But he didn't give him a specific address. And as most of you know, the the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants is pretty extensive when you're talking about one family plot. And so he doesn't give him a specific address. And in fact, we'll find that once Jacob is in the promised land again, in earnest, he doesn't return home to Hebron where Isaac is. Uh, So he's got a lot of options about where he could go. As he comes back from Padan Aram. But as we read our passage tonight, we will see that Jacob takes the one road that puts him on a collision course with his brother Esau. Of course, that might be a problem because the last Jacob heard and the last we heard in the text, Esau was maybe in a killing mood and had the means and the motivation to destroy his brother. Jacob's route home is actually more conspicuous than we realize Sartel Prentiss writes this, from Mahaname, that's the camp we're going to read about at the beginning of our text, from Mahanaim there are two roads by which Jacob may enter Palestine. One road turns westward. This is the easy road, the safe road, the natural one for Jacob to follow. It would bring him into a land of walled towns and fenced cities where his ancestors lived in alliance and friendship with kings and peoples. The other road runs to the south turning and plunging down the steep descent of nearly 5,000 feet. This road is difficult and dangerous. Here, weakness finds no place of refuge. For Jacob, the risk is doubly acute, for he cannot travel that southern route without coming face to face with Esau. When there are two roads running out from Mahanaim, why does Jacob reject the easy, safe, and natural path and choose the one which is full of danger? Well, the answer is... While there were many roads he could have taken, only one led to Israel. Not Israel the land, Israel the man. A tremendous spiritual journey is going to take this man we're reading about from Jacob to Israel. And there was only one way to get there. He had to get there. We're glad he got there, but there was only one way for him to get there, and that was by taking God's road of surrender and submission and reconciliation. By the end, Jacob would physically be weaker than he had ever been in his entire life. But on the spiritual level, he would finally, after 120 years of, frankly, being a spiritual disappointment, he would finally spiritually be strong. He would finally be where he's supposed to be in his relationship to God and man, all thanks to this road that God chooses for him and the encounters along the way. So let's begin in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. And when he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. And so he called that place Mahanaim. We tend to think that this was a reassuring rendezvous that reminded Jacob of God's protection, sort of a bookend like when he saw the angels ascending and descending on the ladder on his way out of the land. But that may not be what's happening. In fact, I don't think that is what's happening at all. Dr. Prentiss suggests in his paper that I quoted from earlier that this was not a friendly meeting at all. In fact, another Hebrew scholar translates verse 1 this way, the messengers of God accosted him. Other linguists admit that the best sense of the word met used here by Moses is to oppose or harm or abuse very strange. Something is going on here. The term Jacob uses for camp, don't think of, you know, a tent up at Potwisha. It has a military sense to it. In fact, your translation might say this is the Lord's host here. This is the Lord's uh, platoon of angel soldiers here. These angels, if they were uh, barring him on the road and opposing him on the road, well, that would make sense of why Jacob would take the dangerous straight towards Esau road to the south out of Mahanaim instead of taking the easy, natural, no-brainer road to the west. And we remember this is not without precedent, even in the book of Genesis. What happened when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden? After he sent them out, he then stationed angels there at the entrance of Eden with a flaming sword so that they could not return, barring their entrance back in. Or maybe you're familiar with the story of Balaam and his awesome donkey in the book of Numbers. Right? Balaam is doing something he shouldn't be doing. He's taking a road that he wants to take in order to harm God's people. And so, what does the Lord do? He sends an angel to stand on the road, and that angel fully intends on killing Balaam if he tries to cross that path. And so, we see Jacob turning south. Verse 3 Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, You are to say to my Lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says I've been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I've sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. You have to understand that Jacob had no army, he had no 318 armed, trained men like his grandfather Abraham had. His brother, on the other hand, had always been a hunter, a strong man, a man of action and of violence. Jacob had probably heard that while he was busy developing livestock up in, uh, in Laban 's country, Esau was down south developing might, developing strength. And so Jacob sends out this diplomatic delegation to sort of assess. Esau's mood. He realizes that he has been funneled by God down directly looking down the barrel uh, of Esau. And if you go online and look at, if you look for a map of Jacob's travels, you see, you know, before he kind of went up this way to the west and all of that. And when he's coming back, it's almost a straight line down to where Esau's territory is going to be. Now, our primary focus tonight is on on Jacob and how following God means surrendering to him and allowing him to direct the course of our lives. But there is a really great sub-theme about how to serve the master that comes from these servants and some others we're going to see in a little bit. They provide some exceptional insights for us as people who want to be profitable, faithful servants in the household of our God. Um, Jesus once told His followers, He told those 72 He was sending out, that He was sending them out as lambs among wolves. And man, Jacob's servants they are a great picture of that right they are sent on a very tough mission they are sent into hostile territory with a message to share and they had absolutely no certainty that they would succeed they were being sent into the unknown and what they did know is that hostiles were on the on the end of that mission but they had this message that they needed to share. And we see throughout this passage that these servants are really faithful, really ready, and willing to do uh, even the difficult things because their master asked them to. Now, it's evident that the angels of verse 1 had made no promises to Jacob. This is another hint that that was not a friendly meeting. These angels didn't say, hey, and we're going before you. Don't worry about it. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's lots of examples where God uh, came, you know, people called out to God and said, hey, we're in danger. Our enemies are coming to hurt us. And God said, hey, don't worry about it. Just sit back and watch what I'm going to do. Or we think of Elisha and his servant. He's saying, oh man, we're gonna all be destroyed. And he says, hey, open his eyes and look at all the angels around. They're gonna fight on our behalf. And there's that um, great comforting moment as as the people of God kind of think, oh good, the Lord's here to fight for us. And what do we see of Jacob? We don't see anything like that at all. We see he's very, very scared. And so obviously those angels had brought him no comfort. They had given him no plan. They were not with him saying, hey, we'll go in front of you and make sure that you are shielded. Not at all. God did not appear to Jacob at this point and say, don't worry about it. Esau's not going to harm you. Jacob makes these plans because he is afraid, and he's pretty sure that his brother is coming to, to mess him up and all of his family. And frankly, he has good reason to be afraid. And so in this message that he sends through these diplomatic servants of his, he, he hints to his brother, hey, by the way, I've, I've got a ton of wealth Uh, to spread around, if you know what I mean. And so, if you're mad about that whole birthlight blessing thing, who even remembers? But we could talk about that. We could talk about, i got so much stuff that probably you could have some too. And so, uh, he's kind of trying to grease the wheel, we might say. At the same time, I think we can already see a new Jacob emerging. He is making progress in his spiritual life already. He is he has made the decision after 20 years of being outside of God's will and outside of where um, the Lord wanted him and his family to be. We see that he said, hey, the Lord spoke to me and I need to get back and I'm going to do it and it's going to cost me a lot, it's going to be dangerous, but I'm, I'm going to obey the Lord. And so he's obeying the Lord and as he obeys the Lord, we see that he's developing developing into a more spiritual person and, and a, 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 having a greater testimony of faithfulness and of God's influence in his life. And so we see this new Jacob emerging already. When had his servants ever seen him speak with this kind of humility? Uh, You know, think about our last passage, or you can page back that way and see the way he talked to Laban, the way he talked to his wives about Laban and about how he, Jacob, I've done everything, I've worked harder than anyone, I'm worthy of this and that and the other thing. Uh, He wasn't the kind of man that spoke really humbly before this situation. In fact, we've seen him for 20 years struggling to throw off his last master, Laban. He's trying everything he can to get out of being a servant to Laban, and now he's talking about being Esau's servant. And so something's going on in his heart that hasn't happened before. And there is an application for us, sort of a devotional aside. The more truly spiritual a person is, the more they are willing to serve. Jesus was a servant and he is the image that we are being conformed into. If you're a Christian, God says, "Okay, if you're a Christian, I'm going to conform your heart, your mind, your life, your behavior into the image of Jesus Christ." And Jesus Christ didn't come to serve, but to uh, sorry, didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give His life. Right. And so, um, if you have someone in your life, or if you you know are being exposed to someone who who claims to be really spiritual, or claims to be a spiritual authority of one kind or another, just take a look to see, are they serving other people? Not perfectly, of course, but are are they servant-hearted? Would they push a broom if it would benefit someone else? And if the answer is, no, I'm above that, I can't be bothered to push a broom, I can't be bothered to take out the trash, I can't be bothered to serve other people, then they're not demonstrating spirituality. Uh, and, and they're not demonstrating uh, the, the characteristics of their Savior, Jesus Christ, who they're supposed to be like. Verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. So this would have been terrifying news. Esau sends no message back, but instead mounts up with 400 men, which was the typical number in a militia or a raiding party at the time. And think about it, you don't just get 400 guys together just because, right? You, you, you parents who have kids, think about how hard it is to get the kids out the door for a morning appointment, right? Okay, now imagine that you want to travel hundreds of miles with 400 guys and how much effort and equipment and planning and hassle all of that would be. And so Esau is, is making a statement. Jacob's not sure what that statement is, but this is a statement being made, and it would have been really scary to be on the receiving end of that, especially when there's no message attached to it. They, they just, it's as if, I'm sure in Jacob's mind, he's, he's you know, going through what could have happened, and it's, it's as if Esau said to his servants, we'll give you one day head start, go for it. Uh, and he, we'll see they don't have much head start at all. And so after all of these years, after all Jacob had worked for, after all he had clawed out of the dirt to make for himself, after all he had overcome to get to this point, he had finally extricated himself from the tyranny of Laban. He had finally clawed together a livelihood for his family, and he had done all this work. And now when he thinks he's finally free, he's powerless to defend any of it, and he has nowhere to run nowhere to go. He's in real, real trouble. What this reminds us is that your life is not your own. You cannot control what today holds, let alone tomorrow right you, you it's good to be to work hard and to make plans and to to scratch together you know a living and all of that that's so much part of the american dream right that that sort of independence and that sort of hey i can do it kind of mentality that's great but as christians we need to remember that alongside of that no matter what happens you can't control today or tomorrow and so knowing that we want to, in all of our efforts, engrave Psalm 127 verse 1 on your heart, no matter what your job is, your career is, you know, what projects you're working on. That's all great. That's all good. It's good to work hard. It's good to build stuff. It's good to, to, to create things and, and benefit this world and the community around you. We're for all of that. But no matter what your efforts are, put Psalm 127, verse 1, on your heart. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. And so Jacob had worked harder than anyone we've seen in the entire book of Genesis. And if it wasn't for the Lord, it was all going to be wiped out in a matter of hours, right? Because after all of this, what could he do to to protect what he had built. And the answer was nothing. And so what he needed was intervention from the Lord God. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps. Along with the flocks, herds, and camels, he thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. And so Jacob's in panic mode. He's also in prudent mode. And and some of you are facing very scary situations or dangers of one kind or another. And even as Christians, you know, we don't have to live the way Jacob did, right? I mean, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Hopefully, we are walking with the Lord in a more faithful way than… Jacob's at the very beginning of his sort of walk with the Lord uh, based off of what we've seen so far. And so, you know, we don't have to kind of have the fear that he had… But many of you are facing very scary situations in life, dangers of one kind or another. While we are trusting in the Lord, and while we are are endeavoring to let His peace rule in our hearts and minds, making prudent plans is okay. It's not less spiritual to just say, I'll do nothing and sort of wait for heaven to open and for a miracle to solve all of my problems. Hey, maybe the Lord wants to solve your problem miraculously, or maybe he doesn't, right? And so it's okay to make prudent plans. Jacob assumes that Esau is coming to kill him, and that's a good assumption based off of what he knows. And so he puts together a plan, hoping that at least some of his family might survive. And so being prudent isn't a bad thing. Proverbs chapter 14 says, the sensible person watches his steps, right? If the Lord has given you direction in life, then follow it and trust Him and don't turn back. Even if it seems like it's not the right way to go, if the Lord has given you that direction, you go that way and you trust Him and don't turn back. But if you're waiting for that direction, if you're waiting for the deliverance and you haven't heard from the Lord, then wait in hope and use sanctified common sense as you wait and receive wisdom from other believers and the support of other believers. And don't be afraid to, to make some prudent plans as you wait. So the walls are closing in. Jacob can't go west from camp. There's angry angels there. Uh, he can't go back the way he came. That would violate his treaty with Laban, who also might kill him, frankly. So now not only is he headed toward Esau, now he knows that Esau is charging toward him. And so in this moment panic mode, prudent mode, but also most importantly, he finally switches on prayer mode. And, and here we have this beautiful, wonderful prayer uh, in, starting in verse 9. Jacob said, God of my father Abraham, And God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I'm afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea too numerous to be counted. Amazingly, this is Jacob's first recorded prayer. It's a beautiful debut. But it's, man, it's so, so different from how he talked about God back in chapter 28. Back in chapter 28, that wasn't a prayer. He was making this weird vow and saying, well, if God does this and if God does that, then he can be my God. So different now. In this prayer, Jacob fully acknowledges who he is as an unworthy human being, and he recognizes who God is. He recognizes that God has already done many incredible things on his behalf. He presents God in this prayer as one who intervenes and who is long-suffering, one who understands and who speaks and who gives generously. This is a God who helps and who loves and who restores and who forgives and who approaches and who is approachable. As he prays, Jacob holds firm to the spoken word of God. He's mooring himself to those promises as if they were true and literal, and thank goodness they were. And Jacob also recognizes that he has no hope outside God's salvation. He says, Lord, you have to save me like you have before. And we're watching this man pour out his heart to God. He's being completely open and honest. And he says, I am afraid, I am helpless, and I am unworthy. And all of those things were true. But also in this prayer, we see coming through God's tender, loving care. Jacob realizes that this is who God is. In fact, he calls him Yahweh for the first time in verse 9 not just some powerful being who's detached from his experience, but the revealed personal God of heaven and earth, the God of this family. He says, wow, you are the God of my family, and I want you to be my God. You've been the God of Abraham. You've been the God of Isaac. But now, finally, he's the God of Jacob too. And he prays there about the Lord's kindness and faithfulness. These are key terms in the Old Testament. One of them you might have heard before is the Hebrew word hesed. These terms, kindness and faithfulness, they're paired together and they describe when a superior individual freely acts to help an inferior individual who is in need, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, but out of love and loyalty. And scholars tell us that these terms, kindness and faithfulness, in the Hebrew language speak of love and action and forgiveness and certainty and mercy. This is who God is. This is how he's revealed himself. This is how he acts on behalf of his people. And Jacob knows this, and he asks this God to rescue him and to prosper him. Now, what does that mean? To us, prosper has such an economic quality to it, right? And it it, it shouldn't when we read it in the Old Testament. It doesn't help that the prosperity gospel, so-called, is so prevalent in the pseudo-Christian culture around us. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all, right? Biblical prosperity is not about sheep or goats or shekels. Spiritual prosperity, biblical prosperity, it simply means, the word means to deal well or to do good for. And it indicates purpose and result. One source says that verse 12 can literally be translated this way, you have said I will do good for you. That's what prosperity is. True biblical prosperity is is when God accomplishes what he desires to do in your life to make you spiritually strong and fruitful. That is prosperity. That's what we want God to do for us. It is independent of your physical circumstances. It is independent of your bank account. It is independent of your blood work. It's independent of your career track. It's independent of all of those things. Of course, God may enrich those Temporal, physical areas of your life for his glory and to bless you. He may do that. But prospering, according to the Old Testament and New Testament, is not about getting. It is about the gooding of God in your life as he accomplishes the work that he's promised to do. That's prospering. And Jacob says, Do that for me. Do good on my behalf. I wish we could spend more time in this prayer. Uh, But just one more thought from it. Jacob clearly believed. He believed God, and yet he was afraid. It is natural for us to be afraid of death, afraid of suffering, afraid of the unknown, afraid of of the trials that we're in. But we know that God does not want us to live in fear. He wants his Peace to rule in our hearts and minds. He says, my peace I give to you in a way that Jacob didn't get to have. We as New Testament church age believers, we have benefits and gifts from the Lord that these Old Testament believers knew nothing about. And so Jesus said, my peace I give to you so that it can rule in your heart and in your mind. And so, when we are afraid, which is natural and and something that's going to happen at some point in your life, we don't have to stay afraid. We can follow Jacob's example, call out to the Lord, remember what he has already done, remind yourself of the Word of God, and believe those promises, and ask the Lord to save you. Remember that he's in covenant with you and that he will not leave you, but he is a savior of kindness and faithfulness. Jacob recognize all of those things in this prayer. Verse 13, Jacob spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him they belong to your servant Jacob and they are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he's behind us. He also told the second one, and the third one, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him, and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. You remember in Aladdin when Prince Ali comes to town with his white Persian monkeys and purple peacocks, he's got 53, and world-class menagerie, right? That great song. No, come on, man. You guys, you guys remember. This is a great scene. Imagine that, right? Because, yes, there was less singing and dancing, uh, but they, we're talking about more than 550 animals sent out moving in herds down the road. This is an enormous gift, an enormous procession. Again, the servants, they are sent out from the master as living sacrifices, right? As far as Jacob knows, these guys are just going to get mowed down. And so he sends them out as living sacrifices. And this time there's even less hope that this group is going to return safely. But I love their faithful obedience. They go armed only with the message and with the gifts that they've been assigned, right? It's a, just a great devotion about how, the, about how to serve our Lord. He assigns which gifts you get and you carry with you. Some had cows, some had bulls, some had goats, some had donkeys. Each one would move at its own pace. Each herd was its own size, right? But they all had a gift to give, and they all had the exact same message, as Jacob sent them out, he said, I'm entrusting you with this duty, but say this. This is the message that you need to deliver. Not your own message, not your own spin on things. You deliver my message. Why? Because lives depend on it. And tell them at the end, I'm coming right behind. I'm on my way too. And so the master sends them out in wave after wave to speak to the adversarial world with humility and generosity and grace. Was this plan one final fleshly scramble on Jacob's part? Was he failing to trust God? In the end, it's true, this gift was unnecessary. unnecessary. Esau refuses it again and again. The Lord will find was also working on Esau's heart the whole time. But on the other hand, Jacob did take the family blessing by deception. Jacob, it seems, is really trying to make things right. He recognizes his guilt. He recognizes that he has done his brother wrong. And so I don't think we can say that this plan that he made was a bad thing. It wasn't a bribe, but it does demonstrate that fear often makes us do unnecessary things. He didn't need to do this. He didn't know that, but he didn't need to do it. Jacob assumed some things about Esau's heart heart that was no longer true. But he also is owning up to his guilt before his brother, and he's seeking forgiveness. In fact, when he says appease there, we're told that the word is the word used for atonement. So he says, hey, I'm trying to make this right. God's way will always include admitting when we are wrong. And our culture hates that idea. But real Christianity includes confession and reconciliation. It's not that we have to keep asking forgiveness from God for the same sin over and over and try to convince him to forgive us. That's not it but it's about being humble enough people that we admit when we've made mistakes because we all make mistakes every single one of us. Jesus letter to the seven letters to the seven churches they are full of pleas that those individuals, those churches would admit their failings, recognize that they are in error and turn back to the lord so that they could spiritually prosper. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about settling disputes among one another and how we should reconcile when we have wronged those around us. He says, hey, when you wrong somebody, not when somebody wrongs you, he says, hey, when you wrong somebody, recognize that and reconcile about it. And so while, yes, Jacob's strategy here wasn't ultimately necessary, it did come from a place of humility and repentance and desire to reconcile. Verse 22 During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two slave women and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with his possessions. This decision reveals how frightened Jacob really was. It was a perilous thing to ford waters at night, but it's a risk he was willing to take to try to give one last layer of protection to his family. His situation sort of reminds us, though, it's a spiritual picture of the fact that we know that he's about to face the Lord. And it's a spiritual picture of the fact that we have to face God on our own. When you stand before your Creator at the end of your road, you will not be in a crowd, you will not be with your family, it will be you and Him. And if you're a Christian, then you will stand in Christ, in your Savior, wrapped in His robe of righteousness. But no family member can sub for you or shield for you, it's just you. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled him until daybreak. The Jewish rabbinical tradition says that this was Esau's guardian angel. Uh, Some suggest it was a river demon. I love that one. Of course. Why wouldn't it be? Well, it's not because the prophet Hosea tells us precisely who it was. I mean, Jacob's going to say it in a minute too, but Hosea says precisely who it was. He declares this is Yahweh himself. So we call this a theophany. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ didn't start to exist when he was born of a virgin he is eternal the second person of the godhead right and he would come and visit the earth from time to time in the old testament in a pre-incarnate meaning he hadn't become the god man yet but he would appear as a man and and this is what we call a theophany it was jesus who initiated the fight i think that's interesting jacob had been gearing up for a battle with his brother and then this happened. It sort of reminded me uh, of that scene in Tombstone when Johnny Ringo is waiting to fight Wyatt Earp, but then Doc Holliday shows up, and man, all the color drains, drains out of his face. The difference is the Lord didn't want to kill Jacob. In fact, Jacob had prayed for rescue, and the Lord is on the job. And he says, oh yeah, I'll rescue you. I'm here to save you right now. Uh, and I, I imagine Jacob would have said, yeah, this doesn't feel like salvation. It feels like I'm in a headlock right now. What's up with that? Uh, But this was the rescue that Jacob needed. Commentators point out that he had been wrestling all his life, wrestling his brother in the womb, wrestling with him as they grew up, wrestling with his father who preferred his older brother, wrestling with his father-in-law, wrestling with his wives, wrestling with rocks and with herds and with flocks. And now it's the title fight right? He had admitted his need for God. He had owned up to his guilt. He had willingly followed the road to reckoning, but he had one thing still, his own strength. Remember, Jacob, we've seen, has incredible strength and vigor. But if he was going to get to Israel, he could have no self-sufficiency at all. And so the Lord grabbed him and put him down in the dirt. R. Kent Hughes writes, Jacob was in the grip of God's relentless grace. This fight was the rescue. This fight was the salvation. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. How is it possible that the angel of the Lord could not defeat Jacob? Well, obviously it isn't true in the most literal sense, because after all, he just Touches Jacob's hip, and it cripples him instantly. One linguist says the term is not really even struck, but to touch or to barely touch. And so, it's not that Jacob was stronger than Jesus. What we are seeing is a lovely type of Jesus' future work as Savior. Andrew Steinman writes, here God is depicted as imposing upon himself the physical limits of a man until the very end of the struggle. How could Jacob... You know, overcome the angel? Well, how can God be born of a virgin, live, die, and raise again? Because God said, I can do whatever is necessary in order to save. And this is what the Lord did to rescue you. He imposed upon himself the physical limits of a man. He emptied himself, taking on the likeness of humanity, humbling himself to death, even the death of the cross, so that those who surrender to him might be rescued. Verse 26, then he said to Jacob, let me go. It's daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It may have taken hours, but finally Jacob figured out this is no ordinary man he's fighting If you you read this thinking, and, and you hear Jacob saying it in an angry or a demanding way, allow Hosea to change your perspective on that. Because there we're told that in this actual moment, Jacob, quote, wept and sought the Lord's favor. And so we see the transformation. Jacob isn't fighting anymore. Now he's purely clinging. He isn't holding the angel down. He's holding on to the angel. More than once in the Revelation, our Lord says to his people, hold on to what you have till I come. Hold on to God's grace and his word and his promises. Don't let them go. Cling to your Savior. Even in this very difficult circumstance, even though Jacob is exhausted and crippled and brought to the end of himself and afraid, he still counts on God's kindness and he realizes that personal strength isn't going to save him. Buying his way out of his guilt isn't going to work. Taking some different road won't matter. Only by God's grace will he be able to survive and thrive and lay hold of God's goodness in his life. Verse 27, what's your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. This new name means contends with God, as it says. But there's more. When L is at the end of a name, scholars point out, it makes God the subject of the verb. And so this name also means God will strive or God will preserve. In this moment, God wipes away jacob's past mistakes 120 years of of lying and cheating and selfishness and failure just gone because of grace in this moment of salvation he says it's gone i've taken it away from you the lord says you're not jacob anymore you're not the heel catcher anymore you're not defined by your sin or your shortcomings you are now forever defined by my future for you god made him new You and I have victory in Christ because He gives it to us when we believe by faith, and He makes us new creations by His power. Verse 29, Jacob asked Him, Please tell me your name. He answered, Why do you ask my name? And He blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, and yet my life has been spared. In the Old Testament, it was assumed that if you saw God, you would die. Gideon and Manoah expressed this idea in Judges. Jacob is surprised that he survived. So what gives? Don't we read in Exodus chapter 33, humans cannot see God and live? We do. And that's true. Human beings cannot see God the Father and live. We cannot approach God in His holiness without being utterly destroyed. Because of that fact... God has made a way to rescue us as he did with Jacob. He said, okay, here's what we'll do. I'll send my son to put on flesh and come to earth and interface with human beings so that we can be hidden in him and redefined by grace and reconciled to God and made clean by his work. Jacob recognizes that God has already rescued him. He says, God should have killed me, yet my life has been spared. Listen, if you're an unbeliever here tonight, if you're not born again, the Bible declares that you are dead in trespasses and sins. The fact that you are not physically dead is because of the grace of God. It's his breath that you're breathing. It's it's him that's allowing your heart to keep beating. And he allows you to live in hopes that you will surrender to him like Jacob did and be born again and become one of his children. It's a free gift if you're willing to take it. Verse 31 The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is why still today Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. The sun set when Jacob was at Bethel, running for his life out of the promised land, and now the sun rises as he returns. But he's not running, he's limping. Though the text isn't explicit, most commentators agree that this crippling was permanent the rest of his life and it's commemorated in the diet of Jacob's descendants. No filet mignon for kosher Jews. God's road for Jacob led him straight to his brother with no physical help, not even two legs strong enough to run away if fighting started. That's the kind of rescue that Jacob needed, a crippling. Bruce Waltke writes, The limp is the posture of the saint. Hughes, again, writes, His end was his beginning, his defeat wrought victory, his weakness birthed strength. Israel prevailed when Jacob came to the end of himself. So now Jacob was ready. Now he was safe. Now he, was, he had arrived. Now he was rescued. Could Jacob have gone another way? Certainly this is one of those stories where God's providence looks more heavy-handed than we experience in a day-to-day sense. When we are making life decisions, If you're choosing between jobs, for example, I doubt you had a group of angels standing over your shoulder saying, nope, not doing that one, right? Uh, It's a little bit bit less clear than that. But even though God's providence might not be as forceful in our day-to-day lives, his attentiveness is equally passionate for us as it was for Jacob. God has definite opinions about the direction of your life and the choices you make because his desire is to prosper you, to do good for you and through your life. There are choices he wants you to make, and there are other choices that he doesn't want you to make. You can look at Paul's missionary journeys in in the New Testament, and you see an example there that mimics the principles of Jacob's story here. So what is the way forward for us? What do I choose? Is it south or west or what? Well, through Jacob and Paul, we see how to navigate these kinds of issues. There's prayer. There's the word of God. There's the presence of God. Jacob kept returning to what God had said and to the character and nature of God, and he clung to those things. He clung to those specific words and those specific characteristics, and his great transformation began when he finally began to pray. All was made right when he experienced the presence of God. He still faced uncertainty. He went forward limping, but he became strong that night when he surrendered. He became strong as he obeyed God's directions and submitted to his charge It wasn't his physical vigor or his flocks or his schemes that he needed. It was the Lord bringing his heart from Jacob to Israel. God has set a lot of directives in front of us. We have a lot of markers already in place that show us what God's heart is, what his opinions are for our lives. It may not always be the easy road, but it's the only one worth taking.